Good morning, everybody. Ed, would you mind just putting that chorus back up about the uh, letting go? We need to hang on to this song because it sets up where uh, the next one, if you would. Uh, we need to hang on to this song because it sets up the talk really, really well. This, um, there you go. I mean, that's, that's where we are today. And we're in Advent, and this is the expectation time of year. You know, we've got anticipation of Christmas season, anticipation of the end of the year, anticipation of a new president, and, and yeah, we all hate waiting. But how we're framing these series of talks this year in Advent, it's less about waiting, and, and the natural question when it comes to God regarding waiting is, why is God taking so long? Does God hear me? Particularly today when we look at personal disappointment. Does God hear me? Does he see me? And why is he taking so long? We want to help reframe the question and instead ask, in light of all that God has done, what are we waiting for? This, we live in a time not of waiting, but in a time of fulfillment because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time, the arrival. And we live on the other side of that, a time of fulfillment. So that's how we're framing this series. What are we waiting for? And today, we'll be looking at a story of a person named Hannah from the Old Testament of the Bible. And as Christy alluded to, we'll also be hearing from a member of our community, Roxanne Morgan. And then we'll tie it all together to see what does this have to say about Christmas time anyway. Let's start then just by diving right in to the story of Hannah. Now, for those of you who have perhaps grown up in church, you may know the story of Hannah. If you had your Bibles with you, or if you had your Bibles with you, the story of Hannah can be found in the book of, book of 1 Samuel, which is early on in the front part of your Bible. And let me just sort of give us a unified understanding of what's happening in this period of time. We're roughly speaking about, oh, let's say 1100 B.C., so quite a long time ago. And this is basically what has happened. This is after the time of Moses. This is after the time of going through the Red Sea and being delivered, the children of Israel being delivered from Egypt. The Hebrew people have wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua, their leader, has taken, into the, taken them into the promised land of Canaan where they have begun conquering and settling the land that God has, had promised them a long time ago. But we're in this period of time after Moses and Joshua, before the time of the kings, and the Bible describes this period of time as basically this. The people did whatever was right in their own eyes. So mass chaos, mass dysfunction, uh, and this sin and this personal apocalypse of, of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes would be met by God through these judges who would come about, certain leaders that God, men and women, that God would appoint for a certain period of time, and they would kind of hit the reset button and stabilize things for a while, but then when the judge or the ruler passed away, people would go back to their own dysfunction, not unlike you and me. Hannah emerges during this time, again, the time before the kings of Israel. And Hannah's story is, goes like this. Hannah was married, and Hannah's husband loved her. But Hannah had a profound issue in her life, and that was she was infertile. She could not have children. And as bad as that is for women today, it was, with all due respect, far worse 3,000 years ago in a traditional culture that was agrarian-based, meaning that this was a culture not of industrial techno-savviness. This was a culture based on what you farmed and what, and what you had as far as your herd was concerned, your livestock. Hannah could not have children, and in the eyes of her culture, she was a failure, period. 
she was charged with bringing children into the family. She couldn't do it. Children were so important because children were the labor force for a family. Children were the ones who would plant the crops and harvest the crops and bring the crops to market. Children were the ones who would grow up and they would tend the fields, they would tend the, uh, tend the herds, they would be in taking care of the sheep and the goats and the donkeys and the cattle and so forth. And if you didn't have children who could be part of your labor force, then you'd have to hire people out and then that reduces your profit margin and you're a mess. Hannah was a failure in the eyes of, of the people of her time. Not only that, Hannah feels bad enough knowing that, that she can't have children, the one thing that women of her time in a traditional culture were, were told to do. But her husband actually has another wife, not uncommon at that time. And this wife is able to have children very easily, boys and girls. And to make matters even worse, this woman loved to taunt Hannah. She was a constant irritant to Hannah constantly belittling Hannah and basically pouring salt in the wound, so to speak. Over and over, incessantly speaking, to our children we would say that this woman was just flat out mean. And she was. And we come to the point of time in this story, excuse me, where this was a traditional Jewish family and as God-fearing Jews did, they would go three times a year and participate in festivals that would happen through, throughout the year. Festivals commemorating significant events in the life and times of the people of Israel. There was no church. There was no temple, uh, temple building. There was a tabernacle, which was kind of the, the, temporary, place of, or the temporary place of worship. A tent of meeting, the Bible often uses that phrase. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was located. And that's where the priest was. And so three times a year, the people would bring their sacrifices for these festivals and, and they would worship God there. And we pick up the story when Hannah, with the rest of her household, is at the tabernacle participating in one of these festivals. And Hannah is pouring out her heart to God through prayer. And the text says this. As Hannah kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, who was the priest, observed her mouth Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. So Eli answered, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And we'll come back to that in a sec. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. And that last portion of, of this story is very interesting. We don't exactly know what happened there in Hannah's life. Was it simply the power of a kind word on behalf of Eli? Was it, was it something else that God was doing? Whatever the situation, Hannah leaves goes back home. And sure enough, Hannah sleeps with her husband and miraculously has a child. She conceives. And for many of us, that would be the end of the story because we do things like this all the time. We, we make rash vows to God. We say, God, I'm in a pinch here. If you can only help me out, I'll do whatever you want. And then maybe we get what we want and then we go our own separate ways. Not so with Hannah. You see, what Hannah was praying for 
was a child. But this is what she said to God. She said, God, if you deliver a child to me, if you grant me a child, I vow to give this child right back to you in service as, and I commit this child through the Nazarite vow. Now, the Nazarite vow was a vow that, that you could make, that you could make on behalf of your children, and, and it was simply this. You wouldn't cut the hair of your child. That child would not touch alcohol, not wine or beer, and that child would be dedicated for a particular point of time in service to the Lord. And Hannah is saying, I will dedicate my child, if, Lord, you grant me a child, I will dedicate my child, my child to you in service for life. I will take this child back to the tabernacle and this child will serve in your tabernacle all the days of his life. Lord, if you would only grant me my one request. And true to her word, Hannah conceives and she weans her child. At that time, about three years was the traditional weaning period. And this three-year-old boy, and this is where the story gets really profound for me and really touching for me because I have a little three-year-old, little Max. And she takes her three-year-old boy named Samuel. Samuel literally means that God heard. God heard her prayer. And she takes this little boy Samuel back to the tabernacle for one of the feasts and presents this child to Eli and says, Eli, just as I promised, you may remember me from three years ago. This is the child that God has graciously given me. I give this child right back as a Nazarite in service to you at at the tabernacle. It is profound faith and profound commitment. And God meets Hannah in a profound way. Now at this point, I'd like to ask Roxanne Morgan to come up because Roxanne has a story that very much intersects with Hannah's. And let me just introduce Roxanne to you by saying, and I mean this very respectfully, that Roxanne is a real matriarch of this church. She really is. She has been a part of Warehouse before Warehouse even existed. And she was at Warehouse before we met at this building, and she was at Warehouse before there even was the thought of Warehouse, even before the name. Roxanne and her husband Bill have been with us from the very beginning, and thank you so much for, for sharing your story today. Let me give you a little bit of a background as to Roxanne's story, and I'm going to cover some significant moments of Roxanne's life just as a, as a way of overview because we really want to focus in on how your story and Bill's story intersects with Hannah. Uh, as you know Roxanne, if you know Roxanne, you know that her story is rich and layered and it's full of joy and full of some really hard stuff. And Roxanne, you again, you correct me if I'm off with any of my details as we just kind of bring people up to speed. But you did not grow up going to church. It wasn't a regular part of your life. And it wasn't until you were the age of many folks here, about 24, where you began to take God seriously and became a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And around that time, you get married to your first husband. And not long into your marriage with your husband, you lose him, tragically, in a car accident. Yeah. And suffer the first significant moment of, of grief and profound loss in your life. Mm-hmm. Like many people in this congregation, and for the next five or so years you deal with what it's like to live uh, as a single person in a married with children world and, and deal with the difficulties and the loneliness and all that goes with that. Mm-hmm. By God's grace, you meet Bill and you uh, fall in love and get married and, 
about the time that you and Bill uh, start to talk about having children, you're attending a church that sounds like it was as fertile as Warehouse. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> is, that, uh, is that a correct statement? Yeah. Okay. Very much so. And at about this time, you're talking about having family, but you're, you yourself are unable to have children. And you deal, much like Hannah and the rival wife, deal, uh, Hannah is constantly reminded of her own infertility. You were kind of reminded of your own difficulties because of the church that you were in. Tell us a little bit about, about that, what it was like to, to be a part of that church. Yeah, um, it was a process of two years and eight months of walking through infertility. But for many of you that may be on that same journey, you have hopes at the beginning and you think, oh, maybe this month, maybe it's going to happen, and it doesn't. And then the next month, and it doesn't. And so it's like this building disappointment. And along with that was walking into church every Sunday and confronting in this particular church a special vase with a rose in it for a little one that was born that week. And multiple roses for multiple babies. And being surrounded by married friends that were talking about family planning. And, you know, nine months from then they were planning to have their first child. And it happened, you know, and it wasn't happening for us. Um, we were also involved with a lot of single people and didn't feel like I had many um, single friends that really understood the monthly disappointment and um, then pursuing things with doctors and trying to find answers and trying different things and it's not working either and you know continual disappointment and um, walking further and further I think into a barren desert place of really being alone and not having other people that were struggling with the same thing or appeared to be struggling with the same thing. So feeling like I really didn't have anyone I could talk to about it. And not dissimilar to Hannah's own experience with Eli, where there's something profound that happens in her life at that, to, toward the end of the passage that we read, where it's as if a light switch kind of went on in, in her mind, where yeah. something changed. You had a similar epiphany in your own life where something profound changed as you were dealing with this infertility. Can you tell us about that kind of chapter of your life? Yeah, let me back up a little bit um, before that time. Uh, as I described, I felt like I was you know, venturing further and further into this barren place. And I found that uh, the surprising thing for me in opening scripture to find that what was going on in my heart was on this page here, you know, that there were words that said in Psalm 13 was where I camped out a lot. And it says, oh, Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Those are just the first two verses. And that's really what was going on inside of me. A little bit further on, I could get a little further into that and what verses four and um, three and four say is turn and answer me oh lord my god that was the cry of my heart you know where are you where are you showing up why do you hear me um restore light to my eyes or i will die i really felt like i was dying inside don't let my enemies quote saying we have defeated her don't let them rejoice at my downfall and that's where I camped for a long time. And I remember specifically with a single friend of mine who I felt like was trying to encourage me but really didn't understand what I was going through, just like shoving this in her face and saying, this is where I'm living. This is, this is what's going on. 
And as, you know, that desert time <laughs> ventured further and further into it, I began to realize that really the barrenness wasn't my inability to conceive a child. My barrenness was in my heart with God. You know, did I really think that he was who he said he was? And for me, the epiphany came one day when I was reading um, through the book of Hebrews, and the particular chapter was Hebrews 11, and it's like this hall of fame of all these really great people that had faith and believed God for things, and these things happened, and some of them got to see things happen, and others didn't. But um, I remember when I was reading verse 11, it says, an alternate translation of verse 11, says, by faith even Sarah, who was past age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him, God, faithful who had made the promise. And that's when I realized that, you know, my problem wasn't that I couldn't have a child. My problem was that, did I really think God was faithful? Did I really believe he was who he said he was? And that became the cry of my heart that very morning. God, help me to have faith. Help me to know you. Um, And that's where he showed up. And he birthed in me a faith and understanding of just who he was. I remember I was in a Bible study group at that time, and we were studying a lot about Abraham and the promise that God had made to him, you know, to give him the son, to bless him, to make his descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And it's like the light bulb started going on. Wow, that's who you are. That's the kind of God you are. You're that faithful. You, you make a promise and you can't break it. That's who you are. That's who you are for me. That's who you are in Jesus. Oh, my goodness. And, like, you know, the light bulbs did start going on. And the barrenness was filled with him. Yeah, God was giving you himself. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the challenges of your story is that um, you meet God in a profound way, mm-hmm. and God actually does bless you with a child. And yeah, we have two, one that was conceived and one that wasn't. So. Oh. And I think it's easy for, for people uh, to think that, well, maybe if I just stick with it long enough, that God will always give me what I want. Yeah. And, and that's not always the case, and your story even, even deals with that, because yeah. about 19 months after the birth of Greer, your, your biological daughter, mm-hmm. you and Bill are praying about something very specific, and you're asking for God to give you answers to prayer, and you receive a, a shattering response to that prayer request. Yeah. So tell us what you were praying for and how God answered that prayer. Okay. A lot of this is Bill's story, so I'll just tell my part of it. Um, we, as we came together as a couple and were married, one of the heart beats for us was to be able to take Jesus places that maybe he wouldn't normally be taken. And we were longing to go cross-culturally to another country, live overseas somewhere just as regular people, and um, be involved in starting a church there and So that's what we were specifically praying for. And God um, had spoken to Bill and really told him that by the end of July that year that he would do something big. Well, the something big ended up Bill Bill being in a car accident where his neck was broken at C3 and 4. And he um, now lives in a very broken body as an incomplete quadriplegic. So that was a very shattering um, something big that we don't fully comprehend or understand but um, I see glimmers that God was still there and still heard the cry of our heart to be involved in 
starting a church. Here we are. Uh, Cross-cultural, yeah. <laughs> In a lot of ways for Bill, it was uh, a very different language to uh, take Jesus and learn to speak Jesus into. So that's, you know, we don't, we don't understand it all, but I do know that God um, is faithful and he was present even there. And while perhaps not in the timeline that you had hoped for, and in the manner, God did give you a child, yeah. you, you and Bill have still prayed for healing in his life, and God has not answered that. No. And you've had to live in the space of, of that, and not always getting maybe what your heart most desires. Um, and so, Can I yeah, but go ahead. Um, if we frame it in terms of what my heart most desires as a specific physical healing for my husband no I'm not seeing that every day but what I am seeing is that he is giving us himself and that is so much bigger and amazing and life transforming than what I'm asking for yeah yeah let me close with this because there are people Hannah's story you and I both agree is bigger than just children. Uh, there are people here who are dealing with profound struggles all across the map, whether it's relational, whether it's family, whether it's economic, whether it's positionally, there are all sorts of challenges. And you are a person that I know, I've known for 10 years, and I know that prayer is a significant part of your life, that you take prayer seriously and it means something profound to you. The skeptic would say, that in light of all the hardship and the difficulties of your life, why continue? God is random and God is not there. But yet you persist in prayer despite the challenges and sometimes the silence. Why do you persist? Wow. And I will echo that, yeah, a lot of times it seems like God is on mute. I persist, though, because it's not really up to me or about me, but it's about who he is. Uh, he doesn't change. You know, the circumstances don't get answered. You know, living with disappointment is very real and tangible and in my face a lot of times. But God is not different. He doesn't change. He is good. He is trustworthy. He's faithful. He's there. He's never going to leave me or you. He's never going to turn his back on us. He's given us Jesus. And that's, it's because of him, not because of me or my stuff. That's mm -hmm. why I persist. Thank you, Roxanne. Thank you. Can we appreciate Roxanne's generous story? Yeah. Well, what does this have to do with Christmas time? It's interesting how the Bible works, and it's interesting the, the symmetry of, of the Bible. And we go back to Hannah for one quick sec. Hannah's child is Samuel. God hears. And Hannah was one of the early prophets of the nation of Israel. And in Hannah's response prayer, in light of what God had done, Hannah says something very, very profound. And Ed, if you could put that in the PowerPoint. Uh, and if we could go to the, to the verse 12, to the, to the very end of her, of her prayer where she talks about this, yes. This is the very end of her prayer. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. 
And now listen, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And if you could keep that up just for a sec or two. In, very, in some really profound ways, Samuel, as he would grow, he would actually become, he would take the place of Eli and become the priest of the nation of Israel. And he would be, in a very real sense, a leader of the people. But he, he would prepare the way for the coming of the king. He would anoint Saul, and after Saul's own failures, he would anoint King David, the one who the Bible describes as the king after God's own heart. Saul's or Samuel's role was not to be the leader, but to prepare the way for the one who would come, King David. And if we fast forward about a thousand years, Hannah is also anticipating something in the horn of, of his anointed. The first such reference of the coming of the Messiah that would be fulfilled a thousand years later. And it's interesting how the Bible works this in such a symmetrical way. Because we have, about a thousand years later, another woman struggling with infertility. Her name is Elizabeth. And her husband is visited by a messenger from, from God, Gabriel. And Gabriel tells Elizabeth's husband that you will conceive a child, though your wife, though Elizabeth, is, is old and well-advanced in years. And this child would be dedicated to, like Samuel, as a Nazarite. In the uh, type of Nazarite vow, he would be dedicated in service to the Lord for his entire life. He would not touch alcohol, not wine, not beer. And his role, just like Samuel prepared the way for the anointing of King David, the role of John the Baptist, the child of Elizabeth, would be to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, the one who would have the horn of his anointing. That's a reference to the Messiah who would come. John the Baptist would prepare the way for a child born by Mary named Jesus, who would grow up as a carpenter in the town of Nazareth. Amazing how the Bible foreshadows this in the life of Hannah, who predicted in a very real way the coming of the Messiah. And how does God intersect with the very real cries of your heart then? Because we're at Christmas time, and it's easy to be confronted with the fairy stories of Christmas time, Rudolph and Santa and Frosty and if it's our house, the Polar Express. We have all these great Christmas stories and Christmas folklore. But where is God in all that? With the profound pain and agony that you're going through, where does God meet you? Does he hear? Does he see? The story of Christmas isn't just does God see or does he hear, but it's the answer that God saw us and he heard us. And he intervened through Jesus. You see, long before we were born, the narrative of Scripture is uh, that these events are actually rooted in history. Not fairy tales, not myths, but space-time realities. That people and places that actually exist. That there was a time where, long before we were born, God in heaven looked down and saw our own propensity to drift our own sinfulness, our own, our own selfishness, our own narcissism, and God saw us lost and broken. And God the Son said, these children are worth the rescue. And at infinite cost himself, the Christmas story is about God himself coming down and taking on human skin. Because he saw us in our disconnection, in our brokenness, and he engaged, he intervened. 
At Warehouse, we worship a God who is not far and removed, not far and distant, not aloof, but a God who actually put on human skin and who lived the life that we could not live, who died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin and selfishness. For the purpose of offering us the opportunity to be reconnected to God, if we only choose to do so. He's taken down the barriers and he's made it possible that you and I can have a personal, intimate connection to God through himself, if we only choose it. And that choice is ours. And the question, therefore, is not what are we, what, uh, what's God up to, does he hear, but God has heard, God has seen. And what are we waiting for? You see, God himself experienced loss and profound suffering and longing and tragedy. The night before, the night he was betrayed, the day before he was going to be brutally tortured and killed, God himself poured out to his father and said, would you take this cup of suffering from me? It's more than I can bear. But father, not my will, but yours be done. Because you and I are worth the price. This is a God we serve who is not removed, but he's been there. And as we cry out to him, he hears us because he knows, our tr- he knows our suffering and he knows what's beneath our suffering. And if we give him permission to do so, we won't always get what we want, but he promises that he will give us what we need, what we need at our core. Roxanne got far more than she bargained for because God met her at her point of need. Hannah got more than she bargained for. Because God promises to meet us at that place. Will we let him? That's a choice that's up to us. So as we consider this Christmas season and this Christmas story, I challenge us all to be, remember, be mindful of the fact that what we celebrate here at Warehouse isn't pie in the sky, isn't just a nice bedtime story. It happened. God came. God heard. God intervened. He gives us the opportunity to come close and to return to him if we only let him. And the question then becomes, will we? And will we give permission to God to pour as we pour out our hearts to God? Will we give God the permission to give us not what we want, but what we need at our soul and at our very core level? Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are good. We affirm and profess that this morning. And I acknowledge the fact that I know that there are those here this morning who are suffering from profound hurt. And they are sincerely asking, where are you? Why aren't you showing up? I pray that during this time of response that you would allow us to remember that you did come, that you did act, that you did intervene, and that you offer us yourself. What a brilliant picture, Jesus, that uh, you tell us in, in Scripture that you sit at the right hand of your Father. And as we pour out our hearts to you, you take our prayers to the Father and say, Father, listen to your children. Listen because I bring these prayers to you. Jesus, thank you for your intervention. Thank you for, for loving us that much. That you would suffer for us because you so desperately want us to return. 
Thank you that you give us your spirit so that you and your presence is closer than our own skin if we only receive that. So for those here today who need to just confess their own inadequacy and their own need for you, I pray that during this time of response that they would, that they would be driven to their knees and that they would say, God, come. I'm not going to do it on my own anymore. Come, Lord. And for those who, have, who are here who doubt your goodness, I pray that through this time of response they would know and experience you in a real way, the God who is there, that you are there and you are not silent and that you want to meet us at our deepest point of need. Help us give you permission to do that. What are we waiting for, God? Thank you for your goodness, rooted in your character. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During this time of response, if this is a community and a place that you call home, we encourage you, even in difficult financial times, to to give generously. This This is the community that we come to every Sunday to to have fellowship with one another and to encourage one another and to be in relationship with one another. So if this is your home, please give generously. We know that many of you do through your direct deposit during the week and through your online banking gifts. We are grateful for your generosity. And now during this time of response, uh, let us respond to the well-chosen music that will lead us to and point us right back to the God who loves us.